Section 8 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michael Yorshaw. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 8. How he employed himself upon his first coming to London is not particularly known. I never heard that he found any protection or encouragement by the means of Mr. Coulson, to whose academy David Garrick went. Mrs. Lucy Porter told me that Mr. Walmsley gave him a letter of introduction to Lintot, his bookseller, and that Johnson wrote some things for him. But I imagine this to be a mistake, for I have discovered no trace of it, and I am pretty sure he told me that Mr. Cave was the first publisher by whom his pen was engaged in London. He had a little money when he came to town, and he knew how he could live in the cheapest manner. His first lodgings were at the house of Mr. Norris, a staymaker, in Exeter Street, adjoining Catherine Street, in the Strand. I dined, said he, very well for eightpence, with very good company at the Pineapple in New Street just by. Several of them had travelled. They expected to meet every day but did not know one another's names. It used to cost the rest a shilling, for they drank wine. But I had a cut of meat for sixpence, and bread for a penny, and gave the waiter a penny so that I was quite well served. Nay, better than the rest, for they gave the waiter nothing. He at this time, I believe, abstained entirely from fermented liquors, a practice to which he rigidly conformed for many years together at different periods of his life. His Ophelis in the Art of Living in London, I have heard him relate, was an Irish painter whom he knew at Birmingham, and who had practiced his own precepts of economy for several years in the British capital. He assured Johnson, who I suppose was then meditating to try his fortune in London, but was apprehensive of the expense, that thirty pounds a year was enough to enable a man to live there without being contemptible. He allowed ten pounds for clothes and linen. He said a man might live in a garret at eighteen pence a week. Few people would inquire where he lodged, and if they did it was easy to say, Sir, I am to be found at such a place. By spending three pence in a coffee house, he might be for some hours every day in very good company. He might dine for sixpence, breakfast on bread and milk for a penny, and do without supper. On clean shirt day he went abroad and paid visits. I have heard him more than once talk of this frugal friend, whom he recollected with esteem and kindness, and did not like to have one smile at the recital. This man, he said gravely, was a very sensible man, who perfectly understood common affairs a man of a great deal of knowledge of the world, fresh from life, not strained through books. He borrowed a horse and ten pounds at Birmingham. Finding himself master of so much money, he set off for Westchester in order to get to Ireland. He returned the horse, and probably the ten pounds too, after he got home. Considering Johnson's narrow circumstances in the early part of his life, and particularly at the interesting era of his launching into the ocean of London, it is not to be wondered at that an actual instance, 
proved by experience of the possibility of enjoying the intellectual luxury of social life upon a very small income, should deeply engage his attention, and be ever recollected by him as a circumstance of much importance. He amused himself, I remember, by computing how much more expense was absolutely necessary to live upon the same scale with that which his friend described when the value of money was diminished by the progress of commerce. It may be estimated that double the money might now with difficulty be sufficient. Amidst this cold obscurity there was one brilliant circumstance to cheer him. He was well acquainted with Mr. Henry Hervey, one of the branches of the noble family of that name, who had been quartered in Lichfield as an officer of the army, and had at this time a house in London, where Johnson was frequently entertained, and had an opportunity of meeting genteel company. Not very long before his death, he mentioned this, among other particulars of his life, which he was kindly communicating to me, and he described this early friend, Harry Hervey, thus, he was a vicious man, but very kind to me. If you call a dog Hervey, I shall love him. He told me he had now written only three acts of his Irene, and that he retired for some time to lodgings at Greenwich, where he proceeded in it somewhat further, and used to compose walking in the park, but did not stay long enough at that place to finish it. At this period we find the following letter from him to Mr. Edward Cave, which, as a link in the chain of his literary history, it is proper to insert. To Mr. Cave, Greenwich, next door to the Golden Heart, Church Street, July 12, 1737. Sir, having observed in your papers very uncommon offers of encouragement to men of letters, I have chosen, being a stranger in London, to communicate to you the following design, which, I hope, if you join in it, will be of advantage to both of us. The history of the Council of Trent, having been lately translated into French, and published with large notes by Dr. Le Courier, the reputation of that book is so much revived in England, that, it is presumed, a new translation of it from the Italian, together with Le Courier's notes from the French, could not fail of a favorable reception. If it be answered that the history is already in English, it must be remembered that there was the same objection against Le Courier's undertake with this disadvantage, that the French had a version by one of their best translators, whereas you cannot read three pages of the English history without discovering that the style is capable of great improvements. But whether those improvements are to be expected from the attempt, you must judge from the specimen, which, if you approve the proposal, I shall submit to your examination. Suppose the merits of the versions equal. We may hope that the addition of the notes will turn the balance in our favor, considering the reputation of the annotator. Be pleased to favor me with a speedy answer if you are not willing to engage in this scheme, and appoint me a day to wait upon you if you are. I am, sir, your humble servant, Sam Johnson. It should seem from this letter, though subscribed with his own name, that he had not yet been introduced to Mr. Cave. We shall presently see what was done in consequence of the proposal which it contains. In the course of the summer he returned to Litchfield, where he had left Mrs. Johnson, and there he at last finished his tragedy, which was not executed with his rapidity of composition upon other occasions, but was slowly and painfully elaborated. A few days before his death, while burning a great mass of papers, 
He picked out from among them the original unformed sketch of this tragedy in his own handwriting and gave it to Mr. Langton, by whose favour a copy of it is now in my possession. It contains fragments of the intended plot and speeches for the different persons of the drama, partly in the raw materials of prose, partly worked up into verse, as also a variety of hints for illustration, borrowed from the Greek, Roman, and modern writers. The handwriting is very difficult to be read, even by those who were best acquainted with Johnson's mode of penmanship, which at all times was very particular. The king, having graciously accepted of this manuscript as a literary curiosity, Mr. Langton made a fair and distinct copy of it, which he ordered to be bound up with the original and the printed tragedy, and the volume is deposited in the king's library. His Majesty was pleased to permit Mr. Langton to take a copy of it for himself. The whole of it is rich in thought and imagery, and happy expressions. And of the disjecta membra scattered throughout, and as yet unarranged, a good dramatic poet might avail himself with considerable advantage. I shall give my readers some specimens of different kinds, distinguishing them by the italic character. Nor think to say, here will I stop, here will I fix the limits of transgression, nor farther tempt the avenging rage of heaven. When guilt like this once harbors in the breast, those holy beings whose unseen direction guides through the maze of life the steps of man, fly the detested mansions of impiety and quit their charge to horror and to ruin. A small part only of this interesting admonition is preserved in the play, and is varied, I think, not to advantage. The soul, once tainted with so foul a crime, no more shall glow with friendship's hallowed ardor. Those holy beings whose superior care guides erring mortals to the paths of virtue, affrighted at impiety like thine, resign their charge to baseness and to ruin. I feel the soft infection flush in my cheek and wander in my veins. Teach me the Grecian arts of soft persuasion. Sure this is love, which heretofore I conceived the dream of idle maids and wanton poets. Though no comets or prodigies foretold the ruin of Greece, signs which heaven must by another miracle enable us to understand, yet it might be foreshown, by tokens no less certain, by the vices which always bring it on. This last passage is worked up in the tragedy itself as follows. Leontius, that power that kindly spreads the clouds, a signal of impending showers to warn the wandering linnet to the shade, beheld without concern expiring Greece, and not one prodigy foretold our fate. Demetrius, a thousand horrid prodigies foretold it, a feeble government eluded laws, a factious populace, luxurious nobles, and all the maladies of sinking states. When public villainy, too strong for justice, shows his bold front, the harbinger of ruin, can brave Leontius call for airy wonders which cheats interpret and which fools regard? When some neglected fabric nods beneath the weight of years and totters to the tempest, must heaven dispatch the messengers of light or wake the dead to warn us of its fall? Mahomet to Irene I have tried thee, and joy to find that thou deservest to be loved by Mahomet, with a mind as great as his own. Sure thou art an error of nature, and an exception to the rest of thy sex, and art immortal, for sentiments like thine were never to sink into nothing. I thought all the thoughts of the fair had been to select the graces of the day, 
dispose the colors of the flaunting, flowing robe, tune the voice and roll the eye, place the gem, choose the dress, and add new roses to the fading cheek, but sparkling. Thus in the tragedy. Illustrious maid, new wonders fix me thine. Thy soul completes the triumphs of thy face. I thought, forgive my fair, the noblest aim, the strongest effort of a female soul, was but to choose the graces of the day, to tune the tongue, to teach the eyes to roll, dispose the colors of the flowing robe, and add new roses to the faded cheek. I shall select one other passage on account of the doctrine which it illustrates. Irene observes that the supreme being will accept of virtue whatever outward circumstances it may be accompanied with, and may be delighted with varieties of worship but is answered that variety cannot affect that being who infinitely happy in his own perfections wants no external gratifications nor can infinite truth be delighted with falsehood that though he may guide or pity those he leaves in darkness he abandons those who shut their eyes against the beams of day Johnson's residence at Litchfield, on his return to it at this time, was only for three months, and as he had as yet seen but a small part of the wonders of the metropolis, he had little to tell his townsmen. He related to me the following minute anecdote of this period. In the last age, when my mother lived in London, there were two sets of people, those who gave the wall and those who took it, the peaceable and the quarrelsome. When I returned to Litchfield, after having been in London, my mother asked me whether I was one of those who gave the wall or those who took it. Now it is fixed that every man keeps to the right, or, if one is taking the wall, another yields it, and it is never a dispute. He now removed to London with Mrs. Johnson, but her daughter, who had lived with them at Ediel, was left with her relations in the country. His lodgings were for some time in Woodstock Street, near Hanover Square, and afterwards in Castle Street near Cavendish Square. As there is something pleasingly interesting to many in tracing so great a man through all his different habitations, I shall, before this work is concluded, present my readers with an exact list of his lodgings and houses in order of time, which, in placid condescension to my respectful curiosity, he one evening dictated to me, but without specifying how long he lived at each. In the progress of his life, I shall have occasion to mention some of them as connected with particular incidents, or with the writing of particular parts of his works. To some this minute attention may appear trifling, but when we consider the punctilious exactness with which the different houses in which Milton resided have been traced by the writers of his life, a similar enthusiasm may be pardoned in the biographer of Johnson. His tragedy being by this time, as he thought, completely finished and fit for the stage, he was very desirous that it should be brought forward. Mr. Peter Garrick told me that Johnson and he went together to the Fountain Tavern and read it over, and that he afterwards solicited Mr. Fleetwood, the patentee of Drury Lane Theatre, to have it acted at his house. But Mr. Fleetwood would not accept it, probably because it was not patronized by some man of high rank and it was not acted till 1749, when his friend David Garrick was manager of that theatre. The Gentleman's Magazine, begun and carried on by Mr. Edward Cave, under the name of Sylvanus Urban, had attracted the notice and esteem of Johnson in an imminent degree before he came to London as an adventurer in literature. He told me that when he first saw St. John's Gate, the place where that deservedly popular miscellany was originally printed, he beheld it with reverence. 
I suppose, indeed, that every young author has had the same kind of feeling for the magazine or periodical publication which has first entertained him, and in which he has first had an opportunity to see himself in print without the risk of exposing his name. I myself recollect such impressions from the Scots magazine, which was begun at Edinburgh in the year 1739, and has been ever conducted with judgment, accuracy, and propriety. I yet cannot help thinking of it with an affectionate regard. Johnson has dignified the gentleman's magazine by the importance with which he invests the life of Cave, but he has given it still greater luster by the various admirable essays which he wrote for it. End of section 8. Recording by Michael Yorshaw, Los Angeles, California.